do thank the Lord for His presence. He is with us. He guides us. He is with us even now. This is church gathered as we open His Word to hear from Him. Let me invite you to open the Bible with me this morning to the book of Job. Job, if you're using a pew Bible, begins on page 402. And if you're using your own copy of the Scriptures, you can open near the center, find the book of Psalms, and turn to the left. You'll run right into Job. Uh, But last week we began a series from the book of Job. Uh, Today we're in week two of this four-week series titled, When Life Goes Sideways. Our study's source is the biblical book of Job. Uh, Job was a man whose life went sideways rather quickly. A man who seemingly had it all. He had tremendous wealth, he had a large family and he had good health, but it went to nothing. In fact, the scriptures teach that Job buried all ten of his children and he lost all of his possessions in a single day because of a spiritual conflict between God and the devil. Essentially, to review last week, the conversation went something like this. God says to Satan, have you seen Job? There is no one on earth like Job. He loves me tremendously. What a servant he is to me. And Satan responds to God and he says, well, you've given him everything. The only reason he's devoted to you is because he has tremendous wealth and good health and a large family. If you would take these things away from him, then surely he would curse you. So God gives Satan permission to test Job by disrupting his life. And suddenly Job takes on an enormous amount of suffering. He goes from wealth to poverty. He goes uh, from the joys of many children to the painful loss of all his children, from health to illness, from respect to ridicule, even from his own wife. His life, quite literally, is all but taken away from him. And yet he continued to worship God. The Bible says that though he suffered, he did not sin. So let's pick up this story. It's a fascinating story. Difficult story, but fascinating. So let's see where this goes. We'll be covering a much broader uh, section of Scripture today than normal, attempting, uh, rather than to dive deeply into one small text, attempting to draw truths from uh, a broader section uh, within this, this book. And so bear with me. We'll be looking at quite a few selected passages from within Job and beyond uh, Job, and most of these by the way, will be on the screens. But let's begin at the end of Job 2. Set the context for what takes place next. And we'll look more specifically, a little more deeply at the end of chapter 19. And so we'll stand in a moment to read that text. But let's, let's hear the end of Job 2, beginning in verse 11. We read this. The story continues. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. All signs of grieving in that day. Verse 13, then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Now, in between this portion of the story, in between chapter 2 
And finally, in chapter 38, when God speaks, we have a series of poetic speeches containing Job's prayers out of his suffering to God. He's lamenting before God. He's praying to God. And also an ever-increasingly intense theological debate between Job and these three friends. This is the least well-known portion of the story of the book, by the way. So here we have five men. We have these three friends. We have Job and one other friend that's introduced toward the end of the story that carry on this sustained argument about God. And none of them, by the way, articulate a, a perfect understanding of God, not even Job himself. They all articulate some truth, but just because they say it and the Bible records it doesn't make what they say theologically accurate. And it has to be so here, because what they say does not always match up. So Job's friends, as we read, they've come to comfort him. But their presence abruptly shifts from comfort to conflict the moment they begin talking. Unaware of this heavenly backstory, set the stage for what has happened. They're operating from a faulty theological framework that assumes Job must have sinned terribly. He must have done something dreadfully dreadfully wrong to be experiencing the pain that, that he's experiencing. And when Job says no, that's not the case. Things get tense. From Job's perspective, not only has God turned his back on him, but now his friends have done likewise. This ongoing circular dialogue and debate continues for quite a while. And then we come to chapter 19. Job calls for their pity even as he expresses faith in God. So let's look at at that text. Let's look at a portion of Job chapter 19. So as you find your place there, Job chapter 19, let me invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Job 19, beginning in verse 21. The Bible reads this way. Job responds. He says, Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity. For the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you say how we will hound him since the root of the trouble lies in him. You should fear the sword yourselves for wrath will bring punishment by the sword. And then you will know that there's judgment. Let's bow together. Father, we express this morning that we need you. Lord, we always need you. Lord, we need you now to guide us in interpreting the truths of your word. Lord, we know that your presence is with us. Guide us, open our eyes, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and help us to apply the truths that you convey through your word. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, church, you may be seated. 
Well, this is poetic language. In fact, if you're looking at a copy of the Scriptures, your Bible likely lets you know that by the way that it formats this text and brackets it off. And, and most of the book of Job is written in this fashion, much like the book of Psalms. It's written in such a way to elicit an emotional response through figures and images. And so here in this particular text, in Job 19, verses 21 and following, uh, Job calls for pity, calls for sympathy, for sorrow, for mercy from his friends, verses 21 and 22. And then uh, he expresses hope in a future with God, verses 23 through 27. And then he warns his friends for giving him such poor advice, verses 28 and 29. Now, even though, stated a moment ago, the characters express some misunderstandings about the way God operates. In other words, they don't fully understand God. They do get some things right. In fact, they get quite a bit right. Again and again and again, both Job and his friends convey their belief that God is sovereign, just, and good. God is sovereign, just, and good. And this is not just their message, right? If we didn't have the book of Job, we could still... Uh, build this case about who God is. This is the message of the Bible, right? God is sovereign, meaning he has ultimate power. He rules and reigns over all. He governs creation. He is just, meaning that he holds the guilty accountable and he doesn't wrongfully punish the innocent. And he's good, meaning he's the giver and the benefactor of life. There is no evil in him. Now, all of these friends of Job know that since God is sovereign, he could stop Job's suffering if he so chose. And since he is just, he wouldn't allow an innocent man to suffer. And because he is good, he takes care of his people. So that understanding, that awareness, that belief about who God is informs their evaluation of of the situation and their response to their friend. And in essence, here's what they say to Job. And they say it again and again and again and again. They say, Job, your situation really stinks. You are in a mess of pain. There's no denying that your situation, that your circumstances are awful. You must have sinned terribly because God is just punishing sinners. You reap what you sow, so even though you deny any such terrible sin in your own life, you need to to fess up, because there could be no other explanation for such hardship. And friends, Job responds again and again and again with, oh no, you're wrong. I didn't. And by that, he's not saying that he's sinless. In fact, his his argument, his prayers at times acknowledge that he is a sinner, but he's acknowledging that there is no secret, unconfessed, hidden sin in his life that warrants such a response from God. Neither Job nor his friends deny the suffering that he's experiencing. In other words, they, they don't deny the reality of the material world. They don't deny the evil that has surrounded him. They're, they're not Christian scientists, so to speak. Maybe that's not a fair evaluation, but I think that's at least on the right track. Nor uh, do they deny that the sovereignty and the justice and the goodness of God. But even so, they have a shallow perspective of how God operates. You see, God is sovereign, just, and good. 
And yet the righteous often suffer. The righteous often suffer. And it seems rather silly to even need to say that. We know this. We see suffering all around us, but in a day where, where, where many cling to a certain flavor of the gospel, a, a prosperity gospel, meaning if you have enough faith, God will make you wealthy and healthy. I think it needs to be reiterated. Such a shallow, feel-good message may draw a crowd and gain a following, but it fails to take the sorrows of life and the content of God's word seriously. God is sovereign and just and good. And at the same time, the righteous do often suffer. In other words, we don't believe in karma. If you're suffering in this life, it doesn't mean that you were immoral or bad or unjust in a previous life. The righteous often suffer and not as evidence of God's displeasure. Not as evidence of God's displeasure. Now, this is, this is key. This is important. Because this is the whole message that the message of Job is debunking. Suffering does not mean that God is mad at you. Right? God was so pleased with Job and confident in his character that he allowed such terrible testing. And listen to the counsel of his friends. Job chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Eliphaz speaks up. He says, consider now who being innocent has ever perished. In other words, the innocent, they don't perish. Where were the upright ever destroyed? The upright aren't destroyed. That's what he's saying. As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. You get what you, you reap what you sow. He goes on, chapter 5, verse 17. He says, blessed is the one whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Now that sounds just like something we'd read out of the book of Proverbs. And I don't think it's in Proverbs, but it certainly would be fitting for Proverbs. But Proverbs uh, deals with generalities, not universals. Job's life is the exception. In other words, Eliphaz is saying to Job, Job, God is disciplining you for sinning against him. That's why this trouble has come upon you. But as readers... We know that's not the case. Because we read back at the beginning of chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 8, that the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He didn't say, look at how terrible he is. He said, look at him. He's, He's blameless. He's upright. He's a man who fears God and shuns evil. But not only does Job debunk this strict cause and effect version of Christianity, but remember what Jesus says about this. John chapter 9, we read, as he went along, Jesus saw a, blind, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, Christians, this has enormous implications, I think, for the way that we respond to those who are suffering. You see, when a massive hurricane hammers the city of New Orleans, causing mass destruction and the loss of life, or when a gunman attacks a crowd and 
Las Vegas, known as Sin City, taking many lives. Or other similar such horrendous things. We dare not conclude that such tragedies represent God's punishment against the wicked. For when we do, we are acting just as Job's friends did. Just as his misguided friends. And God despises false accusations. You see, suffering is not evidence of God's displeasure. Even the righteous do often suffer. Not as evidence of God's displeasure, but as a means to make God their treasure. As a means to make God their treasure. Friends, God wants us to delight in Him. He wants us to find joy and satisfaction in Him. He wants us to make Him our our treasure. And when hardships and uncertainties and suffering overtake us, there is nowhere else to turn but to God. God wants us to turn to Him, to know Him, to enjoy Him, to commune with Him, to find peace and comfort and hope in knowing Him. See, the Bible both begins and ends with a description of people living in a happy relationship with God. And in between, it tells us how to know Him and to enjoy Him, how to have and enjoy that relationship. So, friend, do you have it? Do you know Him? Do you know the God who is sovereign and just and good? Are you walking by faith in Him? Though we may suffer here on this earth, God listens to the prayers of the suffering. God listens to the prayers of the suffering. He hears them out. You see, we know that life can be painful, yet we also know that God listens. I think this is why we have so many lament psalms. Cries and complaints, honest cries and complaints to God for help. Job speaks up and he laments. One of the darkest laments all of Scripture is Job chapter 3. Here a portion of it. He says, May the day of my birth perish. And the night that said, A boy is conceived. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. He goes on to say, I I wish I hadn't been born. I wish I hadn't made it. I wish God would just take my life away. But God doesn't do it. And he continues trusting and walking by faith in God. In the midst of despair, Job longs for relief from affliction. And like Job, may our prayers be honest with God. Honest, yet informed by faith. Expressing praise for who God is. And Job does just that. Time and again, Job chapter 12, verse 13 and following would be one example of this. He says, to God belong wisdom and power. Counsel and understanding are his. What he tears down cannot be rebuilt. Those who he imprisons cannot be released. If he holds back the waters, there is drought. If he lets them loose, they devastate the land. To him belong strength and insight, both deceived and deceive our ears. In other words, God is sovereign. In the midst of pain, Job still praises God. Because even though his experience leaves him questioning, he knows that God is sovereign and just and good. In prayer, he laments. And then he praises God. And then finally, he seeks understanding. He still wants answers. 
He wants an explanation. Job chapter 13, verses 20 through 23 would be an example of this. He says, only grant me these two things, God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me and I will answer. Or let me speak and you reply to me. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Here's this question. He wants to know what he's done wrong. Show me my offense and my sin. In other words, God, tell me where I'm wrong and I'll confess it. I will gladly repent and turn from it. I I want to be in a renewed relationship with you. And I want an explanation from you. Like Joe, we often want an answer, don't we? God, why is this happening? God, why, why are you allowing this? What are you trying to teach me? I, I'm listening. Lord, explain yourself. And yet he doesn't always give it. Instead, he offers peace in the storm for those who continue walking by faith in him. See, after Jesus tells his followers about a future day, when their grief will turn to joy. Listen to what he says. Recorded in John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus says, I I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. He say, I I told you this so that in me you'll have a pleasant life where everything goes well and it's rosy. He says, no, I've told you these things about a future day and life in me so that you'll have peace in this world You will have trouble. But take heart. Believer, take heart. I have overcome the world. You see, Jesus offers peace. Jesus offers joy. Jesus offers hope. Through Jesus, God will rescue and vindicate the hurting who hope in Him. I think it's the message of Job in the greater context of God's Word. God will rescue and vindicate the hurting who hope in Him. Him. That's the gospel. A New Testament message. But what about Job? Job lived long before the coming of Jesus. And yet, even so, listen to what Job said. Job chapter 19, verse 25. He said, I know, I know that my Redeemer lives. And in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. And you hear the longing in his voice. Job wants this to be over. He wants that future day. He wants to see God. He wants to see his Redeemer. One scholar helpfully says this about Job. He says, Job is caught in history between harsh reality, the world of suffering, and the full revelation of God's ways. In other words, he doesn't yet know how this story is going to unfold, but he knows he needs help, and he knows he needs a help that is outside of himself. He knows that his help is ultimately God. God is his redeemer. A word describing in the scriptures both one who rescues and one who vindicates or clears of guilt. Job didn't know how. He didn't know when God would do it, but he knew God would do it. He knew God would clear him and restore him. Just as God later promised through the prophet Isaiah. 
Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. God speaks through Isaiah, and the circumstance is a bit different. The Israelites are experiencing the judgment of God for their rebellion against him. And listen to what the Lord says through Isaiah. He says, come now, let us settle the matter. In other words, you're guilty, but I've, I've got a solution. He says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. See, though the world has been filled with pain ever since the fall of man, Jesus would come and overcome the pain of the world. For even the Son of Man, this is Jesus' words about himself, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life away as a ransom for many. To rescue. God came to earth to rescue the broken and the hurting. How so? By suffering for us in order to vindicate us, to clear us of guilt before God. Peter says it this way. First Peter chapter 3 he says, For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you, to bring us, to bring the unrighteous to God, to make us righteous in his eyes. You see, in God's perfect time, Christ Jesus would come and he would vindicate Job and he will vindicate us and all the hurting who hope in him, presenting us blameless before the sovereign and just and good God. He has already accomplished this, friends. He's already accomplished it. It is paid in full. He's paid our debt. He has rescued us through his blood on the cross of Calvary, yet he will bring it to bear fully on the day that he returns for us. He will return. Paul says it this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven. He's coming back. He will return. He'll come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. He says, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. That's what he says. And so, believers, we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Friends, I I don't know what hurt you may be feeling today. I know some of you are hurting. I don't know what pain and sorrow, I don't know what tragedy and turmoil, but I know that my Redeemer lives. And I know that one day... I will see his face with my own eyes. How my heart yearns within me for that day. In the meantime, in the meantime, in the here and now, I, I know suffering abounds here. So let me leave you with a few practical takeaways for the here and now. As we long, as we wait for the then and there. Firstly, when you suffer, when you suffer, believe her, cry to God. Cry to God. Be honest with Him. Lament. We have permission to do so from the Scriptures. Express pain honestly and fully as you continue trusting God. Continue trusting God. Cry to God and continue trusting God even when you don't understand. Even when it doesn't make sense. Trust Him. In fact, I want you to turn one other place in in Job before we conclude this morning. Job chapter 28. Job chapter 28 might have a 
title over that section titled Interlude, where wisdom is found or something to that effect. But here we have God speaking through the author of this text, interjecting where this is going. This is the question Job wants. He wants an answer. He wants an explanation. He wants to know how to make sense of this. Where is wisdom and understanding and all of this found? And here's the answer. Job chapter 28, verse 1. There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. In other words, we can find these these things, these metals. They can be found. There's a place where we can go and get them or make them. Verse 12. But, but where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. In other words, there's not a place here on earth you can go and find it. Verse 23. Here's the answer. God understands the way to it. And He alone knows where it dwells. For He views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. That's significant. If we learn anything from Job, it's that we don't, we don't know the full story. We don't see everything. Verse 25, when he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. In other words, wisdom and understanding has its source, its origin, and God alone. You want it? Walk with him. Surrender to him. Trust him. And he will guide you. You see, like Job, we want to put God on trial. But we're the ones on trial. Will we serve him? Will we trust him? Cry to God, continue trusting God, and thirdly, cling to the hope of the gospel. Cling to the hope of the gospel. There is hope. Our faith is built upon the hope of an eternal glory. The hope of new life. The assurance of our resurrection because Jesus rose from the dead. God will rescue and vindicate the hurting who hope in Him. So when you suffer, cry to God, continue trusting God, and cling to the hope of the gospel. Now what about when those around us suffer? When our loved ones suffer? What is our role in that as believers? Firstly, let's pray for them. Let's pray for them. God invites us to intercede on behalf of others. We'll have an opportunity to do that. This morning, in just a moment, when others suffer, let's, let's pray for them. For they need God more than they need us. Pray for them, and secondly, comfort and love them. Comfort and love them. I'm convinced, after spending some more time in Job, that one of the takeaways, one of the significant takeaways from the book of Job has to do with how we comfort the hurting. You see, his friends started on the right foot. Chapter 2, verse 11. They set out and went to sympathize with him. They went to comfort him. But then they spoke. And they spoke some more. And their words stung. So much so that in chapter 16, verse 2, he said that they were miserable comforters. What did he want from them? What did he need from them? He told us in chapter 19, verse 21, have pity on me. My friends have pity. You see, like Joe, we don't have all the answers. Let's not pretend that we do. When someone is suffering, we don't have the words that can make things 
right. But through a ministry of presence, we can comfort and love. I can remember family and our church family that experienced a tremendous amount of hurt. In the early days of my pastorate, I remember feeling the weight of going to visit with them and thinking, what in the world am I going to say? What am I going to say to alleviate the pain? What am I going to say to offer peace and, and hope? An enormous burden. How am I going to speak into this situation? And I remember a much later conversation with a member of that family saying, I don't remember what you said. I couldn't tell you a word you said. But they know when we're there. Friends, let's comfort and love. And finally, there is a message. There is content to a message that we are called to communicate. And you don't need a counseling degree to do it. All you really need is to know and to love Jesus. When loved ones suffer, pray for them, comfort and love them, and express the hope of Christ. Express the hope of Christ. Friends, in spite of the hurt you may face here, there is hope. God will rescue and vindicate the hurting who hope in Him. Therefore, we do not lose heart, Paul says. We do not lose heart. Second Corinthians chapter 4. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. What a way to describe suffering for believers. Our light and momentary troubles, be they grief or illness or cancer, dementia, Depression, anxiety, whatever it is, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So what do we do? We fix our eyes, believers. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. Father, we believe in you and we trust you. And Lord, we acknowledge that we need you. Lord, we need you day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. There is not a moment that we are not dependent on you for life. Father, we acknowledge that you are infinite and apart from your saving grace, And new life in Jesus, we are finite. And yet you have made us to know you and to delight in you. And through the gospel of Jesus, you have made us for eternity with you. Help us to know and to love you. Lord, to want you, to trust you. Give us strength day by day. Lord, to walk with you. It's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen. Church, as we consider our response this morning, I I want us to do something a a little bit different today, something we've done before, but it's been quite some time. I know, I know that many of you are hurting, your families are hurting. I I know others of you are hurting that I'm completely unaware of. I want to give you an opportunity for your church family to pray for you today. Maybe you would say this morning that I'm going through a difficult time. 
I'm hurting or my family is hurting or someone in my family is is hurting. And and yes, I would like my brothers and sisters in Christ to to pray for me. Certainly don't want to embarrass anyone. You don't have to give any details to a single person. But we would love to pray for you. One of the things that we do as we come together as a body of believers, one of the privileges we have is to pray for each other. Help bear each other's burdens. So if that is you, and let me just ask you where you are. If you'd stand where you are. I'd love to see several to that end. If you say, I'm hurting, my family's hurting you, what I'm going to do in just a moment is have those around you stand next to you and pray over you. And then we're all going to stand and we're going to pray over you. So if you say, I'm hurting or someone near me is hurting, would you, would you stand where you are this morning? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Many, no doubt many more than what you see here. But any others, feel free to stand. This is you. You're going through a tough time. We want to pray for you. So church, I want you to to see these. If you're near them, would you gather around them? You stand and we lay a hand on them, huddle around them where you are. And then church family, would all of you stand? Maybe you're near one of these, maybe you're not. But you can pray. Do you intercede on their behalf? Take a moment. Let's take a moment in quiet prayer over them. And then I'll voice a prayer and we'll respond from there. Let's pray together. Father, we, we lift up these that are hurting today. Lord, you know the circumstances fully. Lord, you know us full well. For you knit each of us together in our mother's womb. You know the days of our lives. Lord, you know all about us. Father, I pray that you would sustain these by your grace. Lord, that you would comfort them. That you would be a near presence. Lord, that they would know that you are with them. And Lord, that they would experience day by day the hope of eternity in Jesus. Lord, may you watch over them. May you use them. May they be salt and light in a world that does not know this hope. Father, we pray for healing. We pray for restoration. We pray for comfort and hope. Ultimately, Lord, we trust you. Because you are good, you are sovereign, you are just, and you are with us, and you've called us to walk with you. Help us to do so. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.